0: The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. So we get
1: in with Patterson and Stevens, and all they did, they had a top wrist lock on us for eight minutes. We fought out of it. They post by the hair or the tights. In eight minutes, we had a full-fledged riot.
0: All right, doing it again. Only because you're here, though. Only because you showed up. We'll be be doing this. Gonna talk a little more with you guys. It's been a week. Man, it's been a week. First, shout out to some new patrons. Yes, you could do this, too. You want to help produce this program. Keep it free. We ask for nothing, but if you want to, patreon.com slash kayfabe podcast. Shout out to two two new patrons this week, Evan Shearer and Joseph Murray coming aboard. Welcome. They join the likes of the uh, Kent Soderholm's, Coltar Wes Lilliman's, Brandon Petrie's. David Laws and many others try to get some guys uh, guys and gals announced every week hey listen 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 I promised you a few weeks ago that we would discuss and then things just kind of came like the Oscars we had to, I don't know why I had to talk about the Oscars but I did and then the Super Bowl was there so I, I guess that stuff kind of crept into my consciousness and I dumped it on you guys but uh, we were talking about TNA. Uh, we were talking about the, uh, the TNA pitch. I get some questions a lot of times on Twitter when I solicit questions for myself. People want to know about uh, federations that have approached me for work. And one I sometimes talk about is when when we worked with Dixie Carter and, uh, and TNA, and we just produced a live you shoot. I mean, that's all it was intended to be. Um, but there was some talk by the people that were with her uh, to me about uh, plans, perhaps, for me. And I kind of cut them off at the pass and and sent a preemptive strike and said, listen, I, I'm glad you liked how I hosted and all that stuff. But I don't exactly like stand there and ask someone how they're going to win the title tonight. But here's what I will do for you. And um, I gave them an entire presentation. I know I've talked about it on here before and it's in my book. And I told them that what. I could do is what KFAB commentaries could do for them, which was kind of street level credibility. Taking it to the streets was the name of the presentation that I put together for them rather diligently. Um, I reproduced some pages from that PowerPoint deck actually in my book, The Business of KFAB. So you could see the actual slides uh, that TNA saw. So, uh, w- what was the pitch? The pitch was that. At the time, TNA was trying to be a second runner to WWE, okay? That was the reality. They had TV. You know, they, they had TV. They were shooting down at uh, at, at Disney. Uh, Universal, rather. Uh, and, uh, and so they had TV, and they had a following uh, uh, of some sort. They had talent. They were signing away talent uh, from... You know, some of the, maybe the retired talent, we might say. But they they were also developing up-and-coming guys. Bobby Roode. You know, they they had had a young roster, too. So they were poised to do something. But the problem that I saw was that they were doing what WWE was doing. WWE has more reach. They have more fans. They have more everything. So why would you serve that? Why don't you serve something else. And I guess they thought that a little bit, but like from a safe standpoint, like they changed the shape of the fucking ring. I mean, are you kidding me? That's your point of differentiation. So I guess, I mean, maybe borrowing a little from the octagon and UFC, they, they would play on that familiarity a little bit, but that was their attempt to be different. And my point of view was just that, that the whole thing had to be different. And what would be different if the talent looked the same and they wore the same tights, and hey, guys, wrestling's all about the same, you know, no matter where you go. What if your entire point of view were were different? What if you played off by truly trying to win and not not saying you wanted to win the internet wrestling community? I mean, they were the butt of everyone's joke, right? They were the, the TNA, Dixie Carter. It was all the butt of every wisecracking IWC post uh, message poster. Um, what if you got a little shooty and what we offered to do was produce a line of shoot interviews. Now they wouldn't be televised. We wouldn't put them on TV. They wouldn't air them. They could maybe air clips, but we would do it ground ground level, how we were doing it, distributing our own things. So, but now there would be a line of TNA. It was called TNA unchained shoots. And let these guys shoot. I mean, you know, you want to talk about somebody in the company with your ex-wife? Let's talk about that shit. And, and just let it be a shoot. And then from there, you could, you could do some honest stuff in the ring. I mean, you couldn't develop every single angle in the company around our shoots. But if that started to move some eyeballs over there, our fans of deeply entrenched internet wrestling community, I mean, the toughest people to make happy, were our commandos. I mean, we very much represented that internet wrestling community. Before, you know, everybody and their grandmother taped people and put it for free on YouTube. Us and a couple of others were that market. So, what if you used us to have your talent go on and be a little honest? The big, slickly produced program, I mean, you know, they were chasing WWE. It looked like WWE. It sounded like WWE. It was just the ramp, the, the, the screens up in front. Why does it have to be that way? Why did anything have to be that way? But I, that wasn't my pitch to them. That's their business, and that's their set designers and all that stuff. My pitch to them was, why don't you let us, us being the internet wrestling fan, I certainly consider myself a, a, a fan before anything else, why don't you let us, come to you instead of trying to woo us and shove something down our throat let it be a bottom-up marketing experiment let us take some ownership in your angles let us see an angle in the ring by i don't know maybe jeff jarrett and kurt angle i don't know something based off of something that was said on a shoot interview that went viral on youtube that people were talking about and then Holy shit, it's on fucking TV they're talking about, Karen Angle. So why don't you let it be a shoot again? So that was the pitch. Let the people deliver cool to you. Stop trying to manufacture it. I want you to fast forward to today. And I want you to look at AEW and why AEW is succeeding It's consistently beating NXT in the ratings. And I looked this up before to confirm that. And why? Because it's authentic. It's authentic. It's created by the people. There's no big hand of God stirring the pot from above. It is by these guys, these kids, basically. They know what they're fans of because they're the market. So the market's creating the content. It was the same for us at Cave Vape Commentaries. We were the market. We were buying shoot interviews. So what we wanted to see, what was lacking, what wasn't out there, we we did it. We created the market. So that's what AEW is doing, and that's why it's succeeding. I did this 10 years ago with TNA, and I said, let the wrestling fan create your product. And... It fell on deaf ears, but that is precisely why AEW succeeds today. And it's no secret. And I don't know. I don't know. I, th- I think maybe I wouldn't be able to see it either. either. If I worked in that big place in, in, in New York, in, uh, in Connecticut, that big building, that big Titan Tower building, I don't know that I'd be able to see it. Would I be so removed? Am I, would I, be, is it too, am I too old? Maybe it's age, man. But listen. Anything trendy, anything that's going to change things, anything that's going to reinvent something is a 2.0 concept, and it's a young concept, and it has to be looked at with young mind and young eyes, and it doesn't always mean that the the, the, the numerical age of the person is what's young and not, but generally, you can be too old to be too cool. If you like listening to podcasts, you probably like audiobooks. Listen, this is the audiobook revolution now. People love to hear the stories read to them, often by the authors. I always try to get ones that have the authors. And it's no different if you want to listen to my audiobooks. My audiobooks have four audiobooks out. Kayfabe stories you're not supposed to hear from professional wrestling production company owner. The business of Kayfabe to go inside the company I ran for... 12 years, still running, I guess. Uh, Father's Blood, which is a look at uh, parents. Fathers in wrestling who had to work the road simultaneous to being a parent. And also Sophie's Journal, my first novel, a psychological thriller. Audible.com, the perfect place to go for all of these. Uh, You get a free book with a 30-day trial. Make them mine. Make your free trial book one of mine. I will convince you to go further. If not, if you don't like uh, Audible, prefer iTunes, iBooks as it's now known, all my work is there. The audiobook revolution is here. Check out Sean Oliver's audiobooks at audible.com, at iTunes, at iBooks. Let me tell you a story. All right, I had the pleasure of working with tonight's guest uh, a few times as a host on Guest Booker and then um, directing him and Jim Cornette, which is to say just winding up the Jim Cornette doll and getting out of the way, putting it down on the floor and just letting it go.
1: Um, It is Greg Gagne. How are you, Greg? Good, Sean. Thank you for having me tonight. I appreciate it. And how are things going for you?
0: Listen, every day above ground is a good day, right? You could complain, but who, who would listen?
1: That's for sure.
0: Greg, I'm going to start with it because I always talk about it, and I talked about it on Kayfabe Commentaries for 12 years. Pro Wrestling USA, I am fascinated by, all right? I'm a Northeast guy, so for the longest time, my only option was the Vince, well, it was the Vince McMahon Senior product when I was a kid, kid, and then... It was the, uh, the Vince Jr. product. And then all of a sudden, I got to see Ric Flair and Rick Martel and the High Flyers and the Road Warriors at the Meadowlands. And it, it opened up a new world. I read about them in the magazines. I watched them on uh, Channel 11, WPIX. I, I'd seen the guys in, from Georgia TV, but now I could see them in person. So it opened up a whole world to me. And then, Greg, you slammed that door on me a year later. What the hell happened?
1: Well, you know, it was uh, Vince made his big move, and, um, you know, look where they are now. I mean, it was, he looked back, and everybody was, you know, all pissed off about it. What's he trying to do? But uh, he was the only one that could take it to the level that he's got it at now. What USA Wrestling tried to do was bring all the promoters together from Vern Gagne to Bill Watts to the Crockett's to Eddie Graham. Uh, to uh, uh, jarrett down in uh, uh memphis and you know everybody's ego got in the way everybody wanted their guys to be in the main events it could have been really uh sensational i think for wrestling and if done right and if just one of that group would have been able to make the decisions uh, could have probably got it done but uh they all fought for their people, and, and it just uh, it didn't work out. I mean, we had the Crockett's come into Chicago, Comiskey Park. We had a great big, big card there, probably had 40,000 people, and uh, behind our backs in the locker room, Crockett's were trying to sign our people to contracts.
0: Right. So, so let me understand know. the structure of of it. How it was, um, it was AWA and their talent, um, Jared. No longer-
1: Jarrett, his talent, Eddie Graham, his talent, the Crockett's and their talent, Fritz von Erich and his talent. Fritz was gone at the time, but his talent, uh, Don Owens in, in uh, Portland, Oregon. I mean, everybody was a part of it and all had their, their say on what they were trying to do. And, but there was, you know, nobody could make a final, everybody who wanted to make a final decision wanted to make it in their favor. And, um, at, it, it just, it just, it couldn't come together. Too many egos in the way.
0: Did you ever think, personally, that it that it really would be able to gel with all, with with just all of the the separate interests? I mean, there's five major promoters you just mentioned to me. Um, mm-hmm. Did you ever really think that they'd be able to work homogeneously?
1: Well, they all thought they could to begin with. Uh, they had, they had, we had a bunch of meetings. And during those meetings, uh, we would get interrupted because Vince all of a sudden was trying to buy our TV time slot in San Francisco. And it was back and forth with them. Or he was in Oklahoma trying to get Watts' time slot. So, you know, there was a lot of confusion. And everybody uh, thought they had the right way of doing it to go against McMahon. And, of course, and everybody believed that. So it made it really hard to get things accomplished at first. It, it looked like it was really going to roll. And then egos started getting in the way. And, of course, then when the Crockets come into your locker room, try to sign your talent to contracts right out from under you, you know, they, they thought they could do it better than anybody else.
0: Was uh, there a pecking order of promoters? Like, did Vern have the same power that a Don Owens would? Or, or was Vern and, and Eddie Graham like, eh, we'll, we'll, li- we'll pretend we're listening to Don, but fuck it, we're not going to do what he says. No,
1: no. They tried to listen. Watts had a real big ego. Bill Watts did. Uh, Eddie Graham was easy to work with. Jarrett was always trying to uh, push his agenda. Uh, And then there were other promoters. I mean, it's just the the Crockett's were pushing their own agenda. You know, uh, it, it just it really made it difficult. I mean, those guys, you know, they all had such strong egos. And they had all built their territories with the way they did it. The Crockett's actually came in and watched our TV show and then went back. They were with us for uh, two whole days of shooting and then copied the way we did ours. And Vern had given them um, two of our, well, Rick Flair, he was supposed to go down there for a year to get, to get some experience and then come back. Well, they saw the talent he had. They kept him there. And then uh, later on, we sent Steamboat down there who we had trained and supposed to get him back and they kept him. So, you know, it was just everybody was for their own in there for their own purpose and their own ego.
0: What about the houses? Because you were running all WWF at the time houses Um, were they um, did they try to block you or was it easy to, to get the houses?
1: Well, it was, it was, uh, some of them were difficult to get to the arenas. Uh, Vince had come in, uh, you know, the the person, what he needed to do, he had to strike the AWA first. We had the biggest territory, um, you know, from, from Winnipeg to St. Louis, all the way to the West coast. And he needed those television markets to be successful. He had to get the major markets, uh, the Denver's, the Minneapolis, the Chicago, the Milwaukee's, uh, Detroit, uh, uh, Phoenix, Las Vegas, wow. uh, San, San, Francisco and Oakland, you know, so he needed those markets to really bring it in. So he really targeted us first, started coming in and, you know, grabbing the talent. We didn't have, uh, you know, everybody at that time, your handshake and your word was your contract and nobody ever broke it until, uh, you know, Hulk Hogan broke it with us.
0: Well, Hogan was he- obviously the, the, uh, the big blow, but, um, that's the one everybody knows about. But was there somebody maybe that we're not thinking of that was really a heartbreaker for Vern?
1: Well, that was because uh, this was unbeknownst to a lot of people, and I've, I've really only told a couple of people about it. But Hogan, uh, we had a, a battle royal in, in, in St. Paul. Uh, we had 20, 22,000 in one arena, 6,000 in the other arena. It's si- simulcast over. We had sold it out. And Hogan and Andre bumped into each other in the ring and had this, the people went dead silent. They just looked at each other. So Vern then called Vince Sr. to book Andre for the following February. So we were going to take Hogan and Andre around, you know, all our markets. And then uh, in April, Hogan was going to go against Bachwinkle and it was on CBS Network TV for the first time ever. Nobody knew about that but us, Vern and I. And when Hogan, we laid out the whole plan to him. We didn't tell him he was going to be on CBS. We just said that would be a big championship match in April. So he was going to Japan after our Phoenix Battle Royal, our last one in, in early December. And on the plane was Andre, who was on the card with us, and Vince McMahon Jr., and he signed Hogan to a contract. So we got a note from Hogan on December 21st. And Eddie Graham and my father had always played jokes on each other. And it was a telegram from Tampa, Florida. So my dad thought it was from from Eddie Graham. And he said, uh, 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 this is Hulk Hogan. I'm not coming back. You know, and my dad laughed at it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we had Christmas Day. We had uh, St. Paul. Denver, Chicago, Milwaukee, San Francisco, all sold out. Hogan was in the main event, mostly in six-man tag team matches with us. And um, he didn't show up in Minneapolis. And I called him. I said, Hulk, oh, what happened? Well, Vince McMahon is paying me more money not to come to the matches. And I said, well, you know, uh, I was pretty close to Hogan because I found him first in New York at Chase Stadium. He wrestled Andre the Giant. This was in 1978. And after the matches, I went out with some friends, came back, and Hulk was at the end of the hall sitting next to the door and was going into his room. I said, what's the matter, big man? He said, I can't make it in wrestling. He had just a horrible match with Andre that night. And I said, why don't you come to the AWA? I think you're a pretty good guy, and I think we can turn you around and get you going. You need some more training. So I came back, told my dad about him. Um, He never heard from him. Three minutes. Three months later, Hogan calls. Hey, I'd like to come to the AWA. Well, we're going to be on the Phil Donahue show in Chicago. You're da- driving up from Tampa. Stop there, and we'll put you on an interview at the end of the at the end of the show. Well, I told my dad, don't put him on an interview, but he put him on, and it was a horrible interview. Just <laughs> horrible. So Vern worked with him on his personality and his interview. And then Jim and I worked in the ring with him. We put him in six-man tag matches with us, and we'd only let him get in the ring when we had control. And we'd say, you know, spin the arm and drop a leg on it and tag out. Uh, when it was time, And he really caught on quick with us. And um, it was kind of devastating to me because I thought we were pretty close That when he left. But uh, I said, you know, that's not the way you do business. Finish Finish out your matches, and then you can go. But don't just walk out. Well, he walked out. Then they grabbed Gene Okerlund, then Jesse, the body Ventura, and so on and so on. The last one to leave was Bobby Heenan. And Bobby was the only one that finished all of his all of his uh, matches before he left.
0: Wow. Did you have any discussions with Terry uh, ever subsequent to, to that? Like like now, like has he ever said, I'm really sorry about how it went down?
1: Uh, when they went on the Fox network, I flew out there with my brother-in-law and uh, Hulk was there. Terry was there. And we went back and we were talking and he said, you know, you did a lot for me. He said, uh, you were the first one. Remember the match in Chicago? Rosemont Arena. I said, yeah, I do. He said, we hit the ring. We were wrestling Bockwinkel, Stevens and Jerry Blackwell with heated in the corner. It was Jim and I and Hulk. We got in the ring and the people erupted. And I reached up and grabbed his T-shirt, and I told Jim to grab the other side, and we tore the shirt off slow. And he said, "I'll never forget that." He said, "You're the guy that did that for me." And then I told him, I told him then what was laid out for him until April. He said, "Why didn't you tell me?" I said, "Because CBS and Vern and I were supposed to be secretive about it, not let it, anybody know about it." Right. And I said, "So I couldn't tell you." He said, "I loved it there. I never would have gone."
0: Well, you did a lot well, more for him than just the T-shirt. I mean, I hope he doesn't think it's just the damn T-shirt that he I has to Was thank the guy he is for. He
1: he know, no, he knows that. Okay. He knows that. No, he's, deep down, he's really a good guy.
0: What well, would it have taken for the opposition attempt on McMahon to have succeeded? Is it just the fact that the promoters had to get along and had to be honorable, or, or is there something more that would have been needed?
1: There was probably, you, you know, it would have been nice if they would have just if they would have had a little meeting and appointed one one of the one of the guys to make all the calls, all the decisions. And we really had the strongest markets and, and knew how to, um, I think, combat McMahon as well as anybody. Uh, you know, the Crockett's had a good organ, great organization. Watts had a great one, but I think our talent was a little different than what they had. And um, well, I, you know what? That's such a hard one to, to even answer, even think about, but I think yeah. if they would have just had one guy make the decisions, if everybody would have gone with it, it would have worked. Cause but think about not, what you not, had,
0: you had, you had the houses, you had the big houses, yeah. you had television in the New York market. Um, mm-hmm. at, I, I think, did you follow WWF maybe in New York? I'm trying to think. It was definitely a Saturday mid morning.
1: I, you know I don't even know what time we were on there, yeah. but, uh, it was a pretty good time. Slot, yeah, it
0: was. And, and, um, I mean, you had the biggest names in the sport. It just seems yep. like almost too good to fail.
1: Yeah, it could have been, it could have been, but you know, uh, still thinking about it and thinking back on it. I don't know if you could have done it without Hulk. He was the key. He was the key to the whole thing. And without him, you know, we might have had a good good run for a while. Um, you know, it's just, you know, it's, how do you even, we don't, I don't know.
0: I don't I know. It's nostalgia. It. It's nostalgia, Greg. A boy can yeah. dream. Please don't take yeah. that away from me.
1: I'm not trying to take it away from you. Um, I think we could have taken them. How about that?
0: Where do you stand on today's product?
1: Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little, uh, little torn about it, but it is what it is. You know, and, and you look at all professional sports, they all evolve into something different. Uh, look at this year in baseball, all the home runs that were hit. Um, you know, I think Major League Baseball knows that you can't have one to nothing, two to nothing games and draw people. And I think they juiced up that ball a little bit, created the home runs, and they had more interest than they've ever had. Uh, hockey has changed. Uh, you know, every sport evolves into something different. And wrestling is no different. It, it's evolved now. I call it a live video uh, a live video game. Uh, you know, I, I just, uh, they don't, there's very little wrestling anymore. It's more flipping and flopping. And McMahon, you know, he, he follows, I mean, he, he's a really a bright, bright man. And he knows that the attention span for the viewing audience is eight seconds. So he doesn't want them clicking off. So they've speeded up everything. And it's just, a, again, I think this is a live video game. But the talent, the talents, they're fantastic. The athletes are great. Uh, they work hard in the ring. Uh, just a different philosophy than what we we grew up in.
0: I had Blair uh, Brian Blair on a few weeks ago, and um, we were talking about. I was talking to him about uh, guys with amateur backgrounds that then became professional wrestlers, and I always thought that from a believability standpoint, everything from a punch. I'm not even talking about chain wrestling or any kind of amateur moves. A punch from Brian Blair, a knee drop from Brian, Brian Blair was so much more believable than anything from a Dusty Rhodes or a Hulk Hogan. I'm just talking about from a believability standpoint when the illusion was important. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you buy that? And if so, why? What was it about the amateur background that made them good professional wrestlers?
1: Well, I'll disagree with you. Okay, A A lot of the amateurs that came into it couldn't adapt to the offensive style of professional wrestling because they were so defensive orientated. Amateur wrestling is so, I can name hundreds of guys that were amateur wrestlers that never made it. And they came through Vern's camp, they just couldn't quite grab the concept because they'd, you know, from the time they were seven or eight years old, they're in wrestling camps, and it's all defensive wrestling. And now when you get in the pro style, it has to be more offensive. And they just, uh, some a lot of them couldn't adapt to it, and a lot of them didn't. You know, there's only a few amateurs that made big money in professional wrestling.
0: Did you guys then, in the training camp, in the barn, we always hear about the barn. It was oh, true, the fuck right? The, the barn.
1: Oh, shit, it's true, man. <laughs> it, it was the most grueling thing about, I've ever been about in About 10, de,
0: 10 degrees? Uh, uh, how about 15 below? <laughs> so six o'clock in the morning, 15 below, taking uh, back bumps for four hours. I, I, it should be punishment for traffic violators.
1: We actually did. We started in September. We ended on January, end of January. Vern had this old barn. There was no windows in it. One light bulb above the ring. And we'd go in, you know, at about three in the afternoon. And in the wintertime, by 4.30, it's, it's dark. And it would be uh, in January. We got to a few of them where there were 15 below. And we'd go six hours a day, six days a week. Uh, started an hour of calisthenics, finished with an hour of running both sprints and up and down clay cliffs over in this riverbed that was not too far from us on the Minnesota River.
0: So you'd have to get out of the barn and run into the river then? Oh,
1: oh yeah. Oh, Oh, yeah. But then four hours in the ring and we we, would probably take, uh, the second hour was a lot of uh, more conditioning, learning how to hit the ropes. Uh, The next one was holds and counter holds. And the next one was, we probably took, each one of us maybe a thousand bumps a day learning how to fall and protect ourselves. And then as we got into January, when we were all progressing, they had a drill would be one guy in the middle of the ring and the other five of us, it was Ken Patira, Rick Flair, Jim Brunzel, the iron Sheik, Bob Bruggers and myself. And we had sweatsuits on, you know, the old gray sweatsuits. Yeah. And, Uh, You'd have a pretty good sweat going. One guy would get in the middle. Then the second, the next guy in line would get in with him. And and Vern would just call out, uh, grab a headlock, uh, two tackles, hip toss, arm drag, uh, body slam, cover him, one, two, kick out, arm drag. And the guy would be in there for three minutes with each guy. So each guy got, you know, 15 minutes. So you'd get this good sweat going. And then you'd come in and you'd be at the end of the line. And it's 15 below zero outside. And, you know, all of a sudden you can feel your sweatsuit from the sweat starting to freeze. And then they run in and they call a body slam. And Jesus is like your whole body went to pieces. Yeah.
0: And listen, three of the six that you mentioned were probably up partying the night before, but I can't imagine you'd be able to, whether you were Ken Patera and the Iron Sheik or not with, uh, with a regiment like this.
1: Well, not at that time. None of them did. I mean, uh, bruggers like to go out and party, but the rest of us not not too much. We usually went and lifted weights afterwards.
0: Right oh, after our, after that, after that, Jesus Christmas. What was the most important thing that um, a young trainee could get from the from the Ganya camp that they probably couldn't get anywhere else?
1: Um, how to respect the sport, I would say. Vern was a, you know, he was an amateur wrestler, a Big Ten champion, a high school state champion, Big Ten champion, I wrestled on the uh, Olympic team. He was an NCAA champion. So his philosophy was um, that it, it's, it's real and you better make it look like it's real in there and you better respect the sport. And everybody that came out of those camps, we figured one day, we counted up, yet trained 144 wrestlers, and out of that, I'd say 140 of them ended up being main event wrestlers, and you know they all respected the sport. Uh, when we started, we all had to haul the ring, we all had a referee, and we had to wrestle, and then eventually, the ones he thought he'd train them into how how to do the uh, how to do the. To the television and the booking and stuff like that.
0: Well, it all worked. I mean, because you always hear about the, the Minnesota guys. It, it's become a, uh, an identity. Uh, it, it was at one time in, yep. in the business, it, if you were one of those Minnesota guys, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, well, no, because when we came out, we were ready, you know. Right. Uh, usually, you, I mean, here's Mad Dog Bashan. Remember that name? Sure, of course. Mad Dog wrestled on the 1948 Olympic team for the uh, for the Canadian team. My dad met him there. Blonde, wavy hair, good-looking guy. Started wrestling. Lost his hair. Got a tooth knocked out. Got hit in the throat. <laughs> he talked. Like, he talked like this: "This is the bad dog." Ten years he's in the he's in the business. He's out in Portland, Oregon, and is failing. He, he's going to quit wrestling. It's his last last match, and he's going to quit. Can't make any money. So he's all pissed off. He, Don Owens has him on the card like the second match. He goes out with this young kid, throws him out of the ring, hits him over the head with a chair, busts him wide open, knocks out two people in the front row, knocks out two cops.
0: Oh, those were the days, man. Those were the yeah, days. They, Go ahead.
1: They finally get him back in the locker room, and the police are trying to get him under control. And he's just got that look, and he's pacing back and forth. And uh, Don Owens says, you're nothing but a mad dog. He got that name, so Don Owens had called my father and said, hey, this mad dog, I call him Mad Dog, but Sean, he's a mad dog. You can't believe this guy. I've never seen anything like it. He's on his way back to Montreal. Can he stop in Omaha and do TV for you? They had their own show in Omaha. He stopped there. The promoter saw him, fell in love with him. The next week, he had him booked with Vern in Omaha, and he beat Vern for the championship. And The rest was history.
0: And he pulled, a, uh, he pulled a damn plane door open, didn't he? You told that story oh, on the yeah. Back to the Territories. That, that's
1: an that, that's unbelievable story. You I can, was on that flight
0: with him. you got to get that one from uh, Back to the Territories, AWA with Jim Cornette. Where would Vern stand on today's product, Greg?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting because um, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame. Uh, he had hel- had Alzheimer's at the time. Early stages, but he was very forgetful. So when they told me he was going to be in the Hall of Famous, so I think I'm going to have to do the most of the talking for him. And that night, he was always very critical of the product, you know. And we went down there night, and Vince McMahon had a match with Shawn Michaels. And Shawn, we had found in San Antonio and brought him up, teamed him up with Bernie Gennetti. In that yeah. Night and kind of polished him polished him off as much as we could before he left. And when they came out, Vern was smiling and he told Vince it was one of the greatest matches he'd ever seen. So, <laughs> <laughs> but they did have a heck of a match. I mean,
0: we're going to credit that to the you, Alzheimer's Greg. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, but it, I mean, I think, you know, at that, at that, that point, uh, he still would like to see more wrestling in it but um the crowd went crazy their timing was great the match was phenomenal and i think that's when i finally knew that everything was okay you know
0: can you ever have though and this is my thing with it i wish i loved it like i did when i was a kid i really do wish i did
1: yeah i do too and I and wish i, I
0: did. I don't want to be one of these curmudgeony guys, but I guess I am. The thing for me is that there is, there can never be passion again because with the curtain drawn back as it's been, and I'm as guilty as anyone for drawing that curtain back, but nobody will ever be hated in wrestling again No, because we know nobody, we know it's, we don't even half-heartedly believe it. Listen, I knew as a kid what was going on, but I could invest because, you know, you used to hear all the time, well, listen, wrestling's fake, but fill in the blank, he's real. It would be Bruno or it would be Piper. Listen, these guys are all friends, but Piper, he's really a dick. Like, yeah. that doesn't even exist anymore.
1: No. I was uh, we, Jim and I were inducted in the Cauliflower Hall of Fame uh, a couple of years back. And went over the list of all the teams we had wrestled, and I, I told a story about Denver, Colorado. It was a very big city for Jim and I, and we uh, Pat Patterson had gone for a little bit, he came back. He was always teamed up with Ray Stevens, who were the tag team champions, and they had Bobby Heenan, and we're they put us in a cold match in Denver, Colorado. We sold the place out, and it was electrifying building. It just pulsated when you came out. Probably had 14,000, 15,000 people in there. It just would rock, and you could jump higher, and shit, it was the adrenaline was really flowing. So we get in with Patterson and Stevens, and all they did, they had a top wrist lock on us for eight minutes. We fought out of it. We'd get out of it. They'd pull us by the hair or the tights.
0: Pull you back in.
1: In eight minutes, we had a full-fledged riot. There was never a punch or a kick thrown. So, when you talk about passion, those people were so into our personalities and pulling for us. And these two, these two son of a bitches were cheating.
0: Yeah. God. And it was
1: wild. And I told that story at California, and I said, You'll never see that in wrestling again. No. And if and you, that was, the, the people just they, they got into your personalities, you know, and they either liked you or they hated you. If the you, ones they hated, they hated. The ones they liked, they just, they were all in
0: and it wasn't ju- i mean it wasn't just the boos and the yays i mean people tried to get over the guardrail you hear about guys getting cut oh. sliced yeah. and hit with bottles it was passion where people would take a chance on their freedom in being locked up just to get a sh- a swing at the crusher uh, at at, at uh, blackwell yeah, at any- or anyone
1: at any- yeah. yeah i mean in Chicago, even the good guys walked to the ring, they're taking pot shots at you, you know. That's I Chicago for you. That. Chicago and Philly.
0: It was worse to yeah, be like a baby face Boston in Philly. Too.
1: Yeah, Boston. I right? that opportunity, but I've heard about it.
0: If you want to meet uh, uh, the aforementioned Jim Brunzel and Greg Gagne and uh, get your photo taken, uh, get an autograph, maybe they'd even double drop kick you for the right price. You can negotiate <laughs> that with Eric Sims. Uh, go see the High Flyers on uh, March 7th. Saturday, March 7th. They'll be there from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Um, at a table at the uh, ESS Promotions table at the big event. Um, in queens so you can get all that info at com. and then you also have uh, an opportunity if you want greg alone if you if you don't like brunzel for some reason if you were involved in the lawsuit that he had against vince mcmahon that he won and you're angry with mr brunzel then you can get greg by himself also uh, go to com <laughs> for all the
1: information um well here's the first first ever not only are you going to have the high flyers at the laguardia plaza hotel in queens on the march 7th and then in albany on march 8th you're going to have both both places the high flyers and the killer bees first time ever the three of us are together
0: yeah that's no joke guys no um joke. Uh, let's go to twitter we have some questions from the general public for you um Uh-oh. uh jim uh says uh was he ever pissed his dad never gave him the title
1: no Never
0: was it ever a discussion around dinner or anything.
1: Uh, no, not really. The uh, one promoter in Milwaukee uh, wanted me to have the title in the worst way, but uh, you know it just wasn't—it wasn't right.
0: And you know what? Kudos, kudos to Vern because he—he uh, he didn't feel the implicit pressure to have to do that, as maybe so many of us would with our kid. No.
1: Well, you know what? I really didn't want... I mean, I had a good thing going with Jim. We were the tag team champions. We were successful. Uh, it it would have... I had some great matches with Nick Bockwinkel, and the one in Milwaukee, Vern was in the corner, Heenan in the other one and the promoter was a little upset that night that they thought I should get the title or win the title. But Bockwinkel had a commitment in Japan next the following week and, uh, you know, it would have messed that up. So, no, I was never... Pissed off about that or anything? I, you know, I just want to do my own thing and be my own person. And if the title was there for me, it was there. But
0: very you know. good. Um, let's jump over to Dylan Apple, who says, "When the Rock and Roll Express was working in the AWA, was there any talk of them working with Bad Company? I feel there was money with those two teams, especially with DDP as the manager of Bad Company."
1: Uh, uh, not really. I mean, they just, uh, I I can't remember that well, but I think they were all four heels. And I don't know if that would, at that time, uh, I don't think it would have worked that well. Just because the time and place, maybe if it had been earlier when when we had everybody there, it would have worked. But at that time, probably not.
0: Okay, very good. Matt Mann, host of Alternative, says uh, any memories of work, of wrestling in the world-famous Cow Palace?
1: Oh, God, I can tell you a great this – is, this is probably uh, – this, this meant more to myself, Jim Brunzel, Tito Santana, Rick Martel, and probably anything we ever did in wrestling. The Cow Palace was a huge arena, and we had to defend our title, tag team titles. It was a big card that night. Against Santana and Martel. Santana and Martel walk out. They're out first. People are booing and going bullshit, bullshit. What the heck? So then we walked out. Same thing. 18 minutes. We heard this for 18 minutes. And Jim and I, we had spot after spot, and Martel and Santana kept coming out on top. And after 18 minutes, we had the Cow Palace standing. And we went, we went thirty some minutes with the match, and kept them standing from that eighteen minute point up, and got a standing ovation when we got out of there. Wow. And every guy in the locker room—Blackwinkle, Stevens, Vern, Bashan, Blackwell—they all came up to us, he and said it was the greatest match they'd ever seen in the way we controlled the crowd. That's beautiful. That, that probably meant more to us than anything we ever anybody ever said to us in wrestling because it was. It was a really difficult place to, to work and to get the people turned like that uh, you know took a lot of a lot of hard work and a lot of psychology. Um,
0: along the lines of serious wrestling questions like that, Sean of the Dead X6 asks, how were the rats in the Twin Cities also did you ever get to arm bar Robert Fuller's hog?
1: Don't even don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Robert never, Fuller's hog. Never dressed and,
0: uh, next to Robert Fuller. He's supposed to be legendary for his uh, appendage. Oh, oh.
1: I happened to walk in the shower one night, the first time I ever saw him down, I don't I think we are down in Nashville, and uh, I ran out of the shower.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think Honky Tonk Man said he could actually put an arm bar on the thing. Probably could. <laughs> um, How did that ever come up? had what the hell else do you talk to Wayne about um, uh, and how about the the ladies in the twin Cities How about them? come on you were a young man you were a young man working uh, on television
1: yeah but you know it was uh, it was it was fun we had a lot of fun we had a lot of fun and uh, we had some really uh, yeah we had some good times in the aWA uh, some of the best. Oh man, it's hard to say. Winnipeg was great. Uh, Denver was fantastic. Chicago was okay. We kind of stayed, we wrestled on the South side, stayed on the North side. So a lot of the lady fans didn't make it up that far, but in Denver, we were just across the the street from the arena and that place was full at night after the matches. Uh, you know,
0: who did the best, who did the best, who cleaned up, who who was? was it? Rick rude. Who would it have been? uh (laughs) sean michaels uh, michaels and janetti
1: well they were a little different cats those two they did they did well uh i i think though the popularity was more before they got there the crowds were bigger and we had more response uh uh we did okay
0: if you tell me it's pampiro furpo i'm jumping out the window no no
1: that wasn't furpo uh, no, we got some great stories, but I'm, I'm not going to tell them here tonight.
0: <laughs> what the hell does a Pampiro Furpo rat look like? Think about that. What you'd ha- what you'd be running never into. Saw,
1: never saw, I never saw him with anybody. Okay. He what what Pampiro liked to do. He liked to play gin. And he liked to, he also liked to gamble. He he played slot machines out in Vegas, out in uh, Reno. And one night we're in, we get to Omaha and we've been playing gin on the, on the plane and I was had him down a little bit and so after the match he wanted me to come to the room and play gin so we're playing gin and about 4 in the morning he's down $1500 to me so I said Furpo, I can't take anymore I went to get up he ran and blocked the door <laughs> and he's got his arms out and he's going no you know that voice of his <laughs> you can hear him all over the arena you better just keep playing with me so I sat down, I lost three straight games to him, 500 a game, and, and got back even, and then I could go to bed.
0: <laughs> oh, Jesus. That is yeah. not, not a good end of a story for you. No. Um, let's see. Get a couple more here. Uh, no Gimmick Guy says, uh, Greg's recollection of the now legendary antics of announcer Larry Nelson would be very interesting.
1: I don't know what he means by that question. Larry was a great announcer. Uh, did a great job for us, uh, came off, uh, doing radio. So what kind of antics? I, he talk I, about?
0: Was he known for running around with his pants off at the hotel in the lobby? I don't know. What the hell would it have been? I don't
1: know. I never heard that.
0: Okay. No, I just threw that out. The first thing that came to mind, oh. obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Mike says who came up with the wrestle rock rumble?
1: Uh, pr- promotion company in Minneapolis.
0: Oh, a third party. A third party. Okay. Yeah. Um, and Jesus wept says, uh, what do you think Vern would have thought about? Well, I asked you about this. What's Vern's style of wrestling today? Mm, Let's see. Oh, here's
1: what I think Vern would think. Okay. Vern always wanted to take wrestling to the national level. He always thought it was as big as, as football or basketball or hockey or bigger than those two. He wanted to take it to that national level. Vince McMahon has done that. And I have to give the McMahon family credit because the only ones that could have done it, nobody else could have. And they took it and brought it to a level now where it's on Fox Network, it's uh, on USA Network. Uh, they're all over the place. And it's the McMahons that did it. And I give them credit for it. It was a lot of hard work to get it. They brought now the the athletes of professional wrestling elevated to most of them are knowing better than any of the football players are out there, or any of the baseball players. You know, they've done a phenomenal job. That's all I can say.
0: And you can credit that all to three fateful words, Greg. I don't negotiate. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Famously uttered by Vince I, Jr. from the window of his limousine.
1: How did you get that story?
0: You gave it you. to me, Greg.
1: Did I give it to you? <laughs> yeah. Long you know, time ago, when we did you know, guest Booker, I got to tell
0: you something about you're that
1: special. Then that. I didn't give it to very many people.
0: Really? Okay. Well, yep. when we did that episode of guest Booker back in ooh, yep. 2009, maybe um, was
1: that with Cornette?
0: No, no, that was the that was the one uh, a few years ago with Cornette. We did one. Oh, oh God. Before that. Yeah, okay. in 2009, where we uh, we fantasy booked uh, yes. uh, yep, uh, the uh, Pro Wrestling USA. Now the the thing about that, and I recount this story in my book. I actually had you and Vern booked for it. This is right, I guess, when his health began declining. Mm -hmm. And um, it was touch and go whether he was going to be able to get on the plane because they kept delaying the flight. And they delayed this thing till like 11 o'clock. I think you didn't get on a plane until 11. We ended up shooting this thing at 3 o'clock. Me and you were bleary-eyed in the suite trying to fantasy book uh this damn thing but it was it was such a huge regret of mine uh, damn that f- fog or ice or whatever it, w- it was because to have been able to to document to chronicle yeah. verne's thought processes and booking philosophies i i never got over the fact that i thought we lost such an important uh opportunity from a historical standpoint uh, to have um, to have Vern on that show, I was I was so I was so disappointed. Listen, I enjoyed my time with you, you know. But but today, no, but
1: I, I I know what you're saying. You know, he he's, where he he went back to uh, 1950. He got a, first he wrestled in Minneapolis in 1949. His first match, King Kong, um, uh, uh, Abe Cashy, and he won by disqualification. The promoters told him he was too small, but he was good enough. They wanted to send him uh, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I'm going to show you how the booking came up. Okay, so we go to Tulsa. My mom, dad and I, I was about uh, I was two years old. We lived in a trailer and we traveled the Oklahoma territory from Oklahoma down to Texas, Louisiana and back up. And he was there two weeks, He became the NWA light heavyweight champion. So now he's selling out all over the place. So in 1950, he gets a call from Fred Kohler, the promoter in Chicago. He said, hey, Vern, we're going on network TV. We'd like you to bring you to Chicago. They needed a they wanted a young guy with an amateur background that could back up everything he said. So they bring him into Chicago. He used to tell the story. He says, I get in the locker room. There's 30 guys there. Fred Kohler comes up. He says, Vern, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going on network TV. We're going to lower you from the ceiling, dressed as a Martian. Excuse my language here, but he said, the fuck you are. He said, I'll tell you what, Fred. I was a high school champion, NCAA champion, Big Ten champion, wrestling on the Olympic team. I got wrestling boots and tights. I'm going down to the ring right now. All these guys can come down to line up. I'll take them on one at a time, two at a time, or three at a time. If I don't beat them all, I'll retire. And nobody would get in the ring with them.
0: Was that, was that a, a rib, or was Kohler going to no, do that?
1: they were going to do it. No, it wasn't a rib. No, he, he was so serious. So he got in the ring, and, and the people really accepted him right away. And then him and Pat O'Connor were sent to Buffalo, New York. This is the first match now that two people from the network TV have gone in to a territory. The promoter had brought two of them, Pat O'Connor and Vern, into a tag team match against whoever their heels were at that time. So he's telling the story. The plane is late. We land. We get into Buffalo. We get in a cab. There's cars all over the place. We can't get to the arena. And we're going, shit, what's going on in town tonight It's going to kill the gate. They got there. It was for the wrestling. They had sold out the arena, and they had 20 to 30,000 people standing outside to get in. That's when he knew the strength of TV. And a guy named Jim Barnett, you're probably familiar with that name. Sure. He, wrote, he, was, he did the programs for Chicago. And Jim had a good feeling for talent. So Vern said, we got to turn this thing around. I want more athletes in here. I'll train them. But we want athletic people and we're gonna we're gonna take this network TV and and go with it TV is that's when he, he, he on the strength of TV and then he developed guys like uh, well hot Schmidt he brought in Killer Kowalski Dick the bruiser who he played football with in Green Bay uh, Kinji Shibuya Irakawa, uh oh God there was a whole list of them I got a, uh, I've got a good uh, uh, oh what is it? Uh, it's the history of, of the fifties in wrestling, yeah, with, and how it started, and uh, posters, and with all those guys around him. Yeah. And it's it's phenomenal, and that that's when he knew the strength of it, and then he started booking it. Him and him and Jim Barnett. Jim had a good feel for talent, how to put them together. Vern had knew how to put the match together and who against who, and uh, it went from there.
0: Yeah. Listen, if you want to see Greg, Jim, you're going to do it on uh, the 7th, right? March 7th, Saturday, March 7th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. in Queens, New York at the big event. Um, It's uh, $40 for a team autograph, uh, $40 for a photo op, and then a a combo for $60. But listen. You know, you you can pay more. They, they'll maybe they'll put a few moves on you, uh, put a few holds on you for the photo. <laughs>
1: not too um, many moves anymore. I've had three back surgeries. <laughs> Brenzel's had two knees replacement. B. Brian Blair's had neck surgery. Listen, We're not be doing too much. Let's see. We'll sign. And we'll talk.
0: Unlike Vince McMahon, Greg does negotiate. <laughs> Greg Ganya. I mean for the younger fan who may not know the the gravitas of being a ganya 30 years ago. Shit man, you're in the Midwest which which really stretched from San Francisco through Nevada and up in the north uh, in the in the northern Midwest, certainly Minnesota and The AWA, the reach of the AWA, and Vern Gagne was legendary, absolutely legendary. I was so disappointed not to be able to get Vern on guest booker. He was in in poor health at the time, but that would have been incredible. And if you watch my lips, we didn't know whether Vern was coming. He was supposed to come with Greg, but if the flight got delayed too much, he wasn't going to be able to get on the flight. Out here and the delays began and it went well into the night. Well, we shot that opening earlier in the day, and the closing line I say, uh join us for Guest Booker with the Ganyas Well, if you look very closely to my lips, um it they still form the words the Ganyas, but you will hear with Greg Ganya, because I had to go in and dub it when he uh when he, when Vern ended up not coming. So yeah, we had intended to do it with Vern and it would have been incredible. As limited as his memory might have been, I'm there I'm I'm certain there would have been nuggets. And Greg would have been there with him to, to kind of walk him through the even if we just did the front end, even if Greg did the fantasy booking part, but the upfront part that the discussion of pro wrestling USA and booking philosophy. Man, if we just got a piece of Vern for that, that would have been incredible. All right, uh Twitter, I always promise. Um Chris XLH Do you think a drama series about both the backstage and in-ring world of pro wrestling would work? What gimmicks would you use? Wouldn't use any gimmicks because it wouldn't work. It's just not interesting anymore. There was a time when wrestling was a closed society, and if you showed people, lay people, because you need more than just wrestling people to watch this show for it to have huge numbers. If you showed the lay person the lengths to which the – uh, they were going to create the illusion And then them talking and playing cribbage In the locker room um, That would be really interesting to them I think it would be uh, enlightening in a way But now the cat's out of the bag Everyone, you know, Everyone's on the Tonight Show Talking about their character So that's what even the layperson is used to seeing I just don't think it's interesting There have been people who talk to me about that. And I've read scripts written by people in the business Big names in the business And they all fall flat it's just not interesting. Ralph Ramirez asks: Last month, you posted a picture of Death Wish Coffee. So, how was it? Also, have you had any type of interaction with other companies that conduct shoot interviews? Well, I've had interaction with all of them. Um, we've been doing this for twelve years, and certainly, I think in many, in the minds of many, the leading producers of for many of those twelve years. So, yeah, we've we've had to do business with all of them. I've done extensive business with High Spots, who are now. Uh, One of the licensors of of our footage in a in a deal that benefited us greatly and them greatly Um, RF video over the years. And then there were little companies that would pop up for five minutes here and there. But we were the three that that went the distance. Uh, RF video high spots and kayfabe commentary so yeah but uh, what was the other question death wish coffee yeah I did post on on Twitter or Instagram or something this coffee my brother got me called death wish coffee it's like you know you try it at your own risk you know 79 times the caffeine or something you know honestly it was like a like a strong Sumatra or like European blend like a like if you're used to like a Starbucks type thing it would be like a Sumatra like a dark Sumatra. It wasn't uh, It wasn't as oppressive as I feared it would be. Um, let's see. Uh, Cullen Guzik, which pro wrestler has passed that you would like to interview for your network? I get that a lot. It's just the ones that, that should have been a part of some of this programming. Dusty Rhodes should have had a spot on Guest Booker. My God, how could I have purported to produce a show that profiles the most Creative minds in wrestling and not have Dusty Rhodes on it that's a great regret Of mine you just never know Man you know you never know when time's gonna run out Like that so What can you do I you know It was I think it was a surprise It was a surprise to me that um, That Dusty left us Derek Were you nervous Interviewing New Jack I've never been nervous Interviewing New Jack I've always liked New Jack I've always gotten along with New Jack New Jack's uh, New Jack's a great worker, and he um, and he knows what it takes to be interesting in the ring and interesting out of the ring. Uh, he's a worker through and through. I mean, as a compliment. Oh, Midnight Gritty, will you please team up with Corny? I need that content again. So does the rest of the world. We're all waiting. Paul Rogers is the hardest part of your job, getting the guest to open up fully. Some guys look great on paper, but just don't open up enough to expand their thoughts. Bob Orton. Whereas other guys have proved to be nice surprises showing their personality and charisma. Greg Valentine. Great question. And, and, uh, such a staunch reality of our business as producers of this kind of content, the biggest name, not always the most entertaining person to listen to for two hours. Conversely, someone who was in the right place at the right time, not always the best guest uh, to communicate his ideas. You brought up Bob Wharton, so I'll bring up Bob Wharton, not to pick on anybody, but Bob, let's look at WrestleMania one. Bob was involved in the main event of WrestleMania one. So my choices to cover WrestleMania for our series SuperCard, realistically would have been, Bob Orton or Paul Orndorff. And I've heard Paul Orndorff on shows and I, and he was not going to be the most interesting guy at the time. And for, you know, for a couple of years before that we did work with Paul Orndorff for our, when we were first getting started and we produced our MP3 audio commentaries. But um, at, I mean, at the time Paul would not have been there. There was a lot. Paul didn't remember. I heard Paul on air, like asking, did I come into WWE as a heel or a babyface?" Like if, and I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying, like you want me to sit there and grill him with intense questions. I mean, some of those things are real detail rich, you know, and I didn't want to do that if someone wasn't going to be able to answer them. So, uh, yeah, so that sometimes is a challenge. And, and look, I always try. Let's say Eric Sims. OK, Eric Sims, super agent Eric Sims. If he's bringing me talent and I'll say, listen, we're covering WrestleMania. He's got to know WrestleMania. He's got to know the details. Talk to him. Talk him through it. I mean, I'm, of course, more than happy to do it, but as everyone knows, you know, Eric likes to keep people far away from those that are hiring them and uh, tell them as little as possible uh, about what they're going to be doing. So, I would always say to him, you know, do, Please make sure that we can go into into detail. And most of the time it's fine that, that there's a... Uh, and listen, I have with me, Anthony would always do extensive research if they had any question or, or were unsure about any aspect of what we were talking about. I had so much that I could read them that it certainly jogged their memory. Uh, in, in many cases, when I could get them the script in advance, we did that um, because it, it, was, it was oftentimes necessary. 3J Platinum... When will New Jack be on the podcast? Soon. Uh, Hopefully New Jack will be on soon. Uh, I haven't talked to Jack in a while. It would be good to talk to him again. 3J Platinum also asks, love kayfabe commentaries. Love the podcast even more. What are your thoughts on Sunny and what would she like to record with? Look, Sunny is no one that I'd want to be married to. But I I just have to talk about this from a content standpoint, guys. Sonny? Sunny is good content we get shit a lot of times because maybe people tell tall tales on shows though she has told me she's we are the only content producer she never made shit up on but she's entertained she fucking gets it and listen i don't know what to say everything we've ever done with sunny i found uh, to be successful I, I don't know if you want me to badmouth her, but I, I, she's deeply troubled, you know, from personal life, of course, and substance abuse and all that stuff. And uh, we had a very honest breaking kayfabe. I think probably the most honest she's been a little bit of work. I could tell when the working started a little bit, you know, but she's a fucking worker through and through, man. That's her, that's her deal. But, um, you know, I said to her there, I said, You think there's maybe a touch of, of, of something more challenging, a mental illness of some kind? And I wasn't insulting her. I just, when addiction is so deeply rooted like that, and also just the, the, the violence of her mood swings. You know that she was describing uh, in these periods of intoxication. I thought maybe something else was going on too, so, and she she probably agreed with that, or she agreed that it was probably the case. Hey, listen, we've touched. What have we touched? We touched Greg Gagne. We touched Tammy Sitch in the same show. These hands have touched both. They did actually handshakes all around. Listen, guys, become a patron of this show, Patreon.com/slash, Kayfabe Podcast. And, uh, and don't forget that we're here every week, for, for Christ's sake. This has been a production of Sean Oliver Media. Music by the great Kevin McLeod, licensed through a Creative Commons license. And your job is to be the hell back here next week. So do it.